Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Daniel Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, chief? Uh Uh-oh. Daniel, am I in trouble? No. I just oh, okay. felt fancy. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure if you were calling me by my full name because I was in trouble. In no, some but way. then I called you Chief, so. <laughs> eh, you know, that's that's fine. That's just a title. But Daniels makes it sound every. I mean, you didn't go as far as Daniel James, but whatever. It still felt a little stern. <laughs> yeah, but then I'd have to reveal my middle name and I'm not going to do that. <laughs> What's your middle name, Leslie? So it's a lot lot going on this week. You know, the Oscars are on Sunday. The Last of Us season one finale airs directly opposite the Oscars. South by Southwest is happening. Dan, there's a ton of TV content over at that festival in Austin. And yeah, lots of stuff coming up. There was a Ted Lasso premiere this week. Yellow Jackets released a trailer. Everything that we talked about in our big March TV preview, there's just, yeah. It's, it's all happening, just like we said it would. And don't forget that this is also the weekend that we spring forward. So yes. don't forget to set your clocks forward an hour if you observe. And if you don't observe, <laughs> you're, you're, either, <laughs> you're either in Arizona or you're going to be really confused for the next six weeks. Uh, six months, rather. Me, I'm going to be very happy for my evening walks not to be dangerously pitch black. So, yeah. I, I love when it stays, <laughs> stays light out later. I mean, it sucks losing an hour of sleep, but like... It just means that baseball season's that much closer. So, my favorite I time of year. Mean, it was it was probably going to be coming regardless. But yes, so don't forget to spring forward and uh, and yay. But yes, uh, the weekend is the weekend is a madhouse, particularly Sunday with uh, with the Oscars going head to head against Last of Us, and we'll talk more about the Last of Us finale next week. Speaking of The Last of Us, you know, for this when when the show went head to head with the Super Bowl, HBO released the episode early. Not so much this time. We just confirmed with HBO that there's not going to be a surprise episode drop early. So challenge extended. I just think there's a large difference between a show that is anticipated to be watched by 115 million people like the Super Bowl and a show that is likely to be watched by I have no memory of how many people watched it, but. 10 million, 11 million, 7 million, 6 million. Who knows? I think you're being kind, but yeah, uh, I, I, I get I your being, point. Yeah. I think, I think there is a large difference. I think they are fairly confident that when it comes to the hip young viewers, everyone claims uh, Last of Us is more likely to be a priority for people who don't want to be spoiled versus people who do or don't want to be spoiled that everything everywhere all at once is going to win all the Oscars. 
And that's right. You know, we will have uh, an Oscar wrap segment probably coming up next week alongside what will probably be another season in review segment about The Last of Us. And speaking of season in review, we have one of those on tap this week. But before we get to that, let's start where we usually do with headlines. Oh, yeah. Number one. Leading off with the week's top headlines, first it was Succession and now Barry. HBO announced this week that the Bill Hader comedy will also end with its upcoming fourth season, which returns in April. Dan, you tweeted that you were not really surprised about the Succession news, but... uh what about this? Other way around. I was more oh, really? surprised. I was more surprised about the succession news than about this. I mean, uh, six, and I was really only surprised about the succession news because of the timing and positioning of it. You know, the show was the, the show had an end in sight, whether it was going to be season four or season five. And it was not a, a show that was sustainable forever. Or, and I think that that's basically the exact same thing as as Barry is that. Every time you attempted to find a different way to have Barry escape consequences while still getting the snot beaten out of him and whatever and whatever, every time you attempted to do something like that, you ran the risk of invalidating the believability of the entire series. And I think that probably the show could have ended at the end of season two. The show definitely could have ended at the end of season three. And, you know, whatever it is, if Bill Hader and company and Alec Berg felt that they had one more season, you know, one more corner that they wanted to get Barry out of, then obviously I'm I'm all for it. It's a it's a great show. And season three was probably my favorite of their seasons yet. And so I would never say, no, stop abruptly. No, stop when they're ready to stop. I just completely understand why four would be the answer. And again, the 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 sort of ramifications when you look towards stuff like Emmys, it's a pretty big ramification as you look at both Barry and Ted Lasso, and not Ted Lasso, we don't know about Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso, you still have Jason Sudeikis doing interviews where he's like, we told the story we want to tell, but you don't have Apple saying this is the third and final season, so those feel like very different things, and I'll talk a bit more about Ted Lasso towards the end of the podcast as usual. But yeah, with Barry and Succession, those are some powerhouses coming to an end, and uh, we'll see what it all looks like. Once upon a time, you might have thought something like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel coming to an end was also a powerhouse coming to an end, and that feels like a a complete and total afterthought. Uh, So yeah, it's... It'll it'll be interesting to see how things boil down when it comes to honoring these shows as they're seeing themselves out. Continuing with headlines, Ted Danson is reteaming with The Good Place creator and former TV's top five guest Mike Schur for a Netflix scripted comedy based on the 2021 Oscar-nominated doc The Mole Agent. For those who, like me, like to get easily irritated, uh, The Mole Agent, of course, lost that year to my octopus teacher, and God, I can't believe that documentary won the documentary Oscar. On the other hand, the mole agent did not. But anyway, Mike Schur plus Ted Danson equals must-see TV for me. Yeah, and what's interesting, too, here is, you know, Mike Schur's got his overall deal at Universal TV, which produces this show, but this show didn't wind up selling to Peacock, so... We know that Peacock has had its struggles with comedy. They just unloaded Girls 5 Eva to Netflix. They, of course, are staying on as an executive, as a producer in the studio on that one. Um, they canceled Rutherford Falls, which, which Mike Schur also produced. 
And remember the the whole uh, Field of Dreams fiasco, where sure they announced it straight to series from it was written and executive produced by Mike Schur, who's a, as we know is a diehard baseball fan. And then they set a filming location in Iowa, and then not long after that, pulled the plug on the whole project. So yeah, not not great. But uh, congratulations to Mike Schur, and congratulations to Universal TV for an off network sale, which continues to be very important in our year of 2023. And speaking of off-network sales, Amazon has picked up two seasons of Batman the Caped Crusader, an animated series from Bruce Timm, J.J. Abrams, and Matt Reeves that was previously set up at HBO Max. That show is produced by Warner Brothers Animation. So there's your big off-network sale. Of course, HBO Max passed on that one as part of its all tax write-off thing and probably didn't fit in with the larger plans of what DC wanted to do. So here's Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers Animation continuing to monetize its content. So elsewhere, Apple has handed out a second season renewal to Shrinking, the comedy series from Jason Siegel, Brett Goldstein, and Bill Lawrence. It's also coincidentally produced by Warner Brothers Television, where both Goldstein and Lawrence are under their own separate overall deals. And you can go back and listen to a really fun conversation with all three, with, with Siegel, Goldstein, and Bill Lawrence from episode 199, dated January 27th of this year, all about shrinking and so much more. That was a fun one. It was. That was a great interview. They were squished onto a very, very small couch. The Sopranos creator, David Chase, has set up his next project. And if you're like, what was his last project? Well, it was the Sopranos movie that aired on HBO Max as part of the all of our theatrical releases go to HBO Max deal of a couple of years ago. I wonder what happened with that, if that was a big success. I feel like no one talks about that anymore. Uh, I kid, I kid. Um Anyway, I do remember that that movie existed, though. That was definitely a thing that uh, that happened. Um, but yeah, David Chase, not so much with the TV projects lately. Uh, this one, though, is interesting. It is set up at FX, and it is based on a previously unproduced David Chase script about the witness protection program that's been given a spiff and polish, it sounds like, by a teacher creator, Hannah Fidel, uh, to modernize the script. So... That sounds yeah, there's both, a little news tidbit yeah. there, Dan, that it, it sources say it is indeed a witness protection program that was previously unreported. So little Excellent. TV's top five scooplet for you. Ah, so now people know kind of what the show is. Uh, me in this exactly. case, I'm just reading the script. Uh, so, yeah, no, it's this this is interesting. I mean, honestly, that uh, David Chase plus uh, anything <laughs> is interesting. Yeah. On the other hand, FX at this point is now beginning to have bit of a list of shows from fairly big name creators that haven't actually gone forward, which is not the way that the FX brand used to work. And in some cases, there are obvious explanations for it. You know, there was the Matthew Weiner show that vanished, didn't go anywhere. There was, we talked about it last week, there was the Nick Pizzolatto thing with Matthew McConaughey. So who knows? It doesn't necessarily feel like the kind of sure thing that it might have felt like a couple of years ago. On the other hand, I will always be interested in anything with David Chase's name attached. Remember that uh, history of Hollywood thing that early Hollywood thing he was doing at HBO that we I asked do. that we asked the HBO execs about at press tour for like seven years in a row <laughs> and never got an answer. A little bit like the uh, David Milch is going to adapt the complete works of William Faulkner uh, deal that they had. Now, obviously, in that case, David Milch's health has clearly played a role in that. Uh, but yes, it's always interesting when when these very, 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 very big 
enticing projects from very, very big names either don't go anywhere or, in the case of the J.J. Abrams Batman thing that you just mentioned, find their way meandering to Amazon. So anyway, musical chairs. Yeah, and it's not really surprising when you see some of these big high profile things get announced. I mean, things die on the vine all the time. It's just, you know, we are in a, a culture in terms of the entertainment industry of when you when there's a big high profile project, you got to report on it right away. In this case, FX put out a release on it, which is interesting because they're obviously touting being in business with one of the great auteurs in our industry. So why not? If you're if you're making a deal, you're spending some money and you're taking a risk, you know, a flyer on David Chase and a previously uh, unproduced script of his with one of the creators that you have an overall deal with, too, and Hannah F uh, Fidel, go for it. Why not? But that's the sort of thing where it sounds really great and then you actually see what it is. Like, for example, there was there was was a Battle Creek a couple of years ago. And, and by a couple of years ago, I think at this point, and I mean, 10 to 12 years ago, the the previously unmade Vince Gilligan script that then got made into a CBS semi-procedural with Dean Winters, and it was updated by David Shore. So that that was what immediately came to my mind when I heard this uh, previously unproduced script part of this story. I'm sure exactly five other people had the same thought. Yeah, and wrapping up headlines, start your engines. NBC is teaming with Mattel for a Hot Wheels car makeover show called Hot Wheels Ultimate Challenge. This one just sounded too fun to, to not include in headlines, Dan. And honestly, you know, if, if Lego Masters can become a, an addictive hit for Fox, and I've watched a few episodes of this, it is addictive. Why not Hot Wheels? The, the, sure. The, this story ends with your wife ending up collecting Hot Wheels. I'm just no, warning you. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> that no, is, please. That, Although that I, is, I collected them as a kid, Every, you know, girl, girls as kids in the eighties had had Cabbage Patch dolls and everything else. I had Hot Wheels and those big twelve and those big twelve inch uh, Star Wars action figures. Though I could never quite get Princess Leia's hair back into those buns. <laughs> I got nothing. Reveal, to go revealing on. myself a little bit more as a tomboy in every single TV's top five episode. Yes, because of course everyone had doubts. Oh yeah. Sure. Mostly confirming things you might have already suspected about Leslie Goldberg, though not her, <laughs> though not about her middle name, apparently. Damn straight. <laughs> Up next. Number two. You might have heard another thing that Leslie enjoys talking about. Snowpiercer. Whoa. Who remembers Snowpiercer? Well, it wasn't that long ago, but as Leslie would like to tell you, 75 different directors, three different networks, 14 different pilots actually aired a few seasons. Oh, yeah, Snowpiercer. But do we have a new Snowpiercer? People have been excited about a TV version of Devil in the White City for a long, long time at this point, and the number of names attached to it at different points. Leonardo DiCaprio, Martin Scorsese, Keanu Reeves etc., etc., Todd Field, but it keeps not moving forward, and as of now, it might be dead, question mark, question mark? Well, w one thing is for sure, and, and that's Hulu, which announced, I think it was last year, that they were indeed going to make this as a limited series with Keanu Reeves attached to Star and Todd Field, of who is, of course, nominated for an Oscar. I think he's nominated for an Oscar, right, Dan? He's nominated for, for several Oscars. For directing and, Tar. And uh, participated in the invention of Big League Chew. 
Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Oh, anyway, people, people know these things. <laughs> anyway, they were look. They were going to Hulu signed on. They were going to make this show with Todd Field directing and Keanu Reeves at the star. And then all of a sudden, Keanu Reeves dropped out, and then Todd Field dropped out, and then there were rumors that there were you know some high profile names attached to it. And now all of a sudden, Hulu officially confirmed this week that they are not indeed going to make a TV series based on Devil in the White City. And look, this has been in the works for more than a decade. So have we found the new Snowpiercer? Absolutely. Is this worse off than Snowpiercer? Positively. But it also does feature two huge names in our industry, Leonardo DiCaprio, who, spoiler alert, I went to high school with and sold baseball cards to, and Martin Scorsese. So they remain attached as executive producers. This was a, going to be a movie at one point. Paramount is attached as, as one of the studios on it, ABC. Uh, ABC Signature, which is, of course, the Disney studio, is also attached. They are the lead studio on this, although it is a co-production because Paramount controls the rights, which they won in a bidding war back in 2015 when Billy Ray was attached as the writer. So what's happening now? Well, ABC Signature is going to shop this. I'm honestly surprised that they that Hulu confirmed that they weren't going to make it this week because Hulu is 75% controlled by Disney. ABC Signature is a fully controlled Disney studio. So it's one arm of Disney saying, we're not going to make this thing that we own. And then the other arm of Disney saying, but we're still going to make it. So it's kind of a negative story when you say, oh, this project is not moving forward at Hulu for Disney when both are controlled by Disney. So usually, you know, you try to wait with these stories and, and announce where the new home is because then you don't have this like, I don't know, this, this little tick mark next to it where it's like a little, you know, snow piercer train, you know, going off the tracks here type story. So here's what I know. The Bear star Jeremy Allen White and Jude Law are both in talks with ABC Signature to star and Captain Fantastic writer-director-actor Matt Ross is also circling the project as a director. So this is clearly going to be a very, very expensive show. And sources say that's part of the reason that that Hulu kind of turned the other way on it. So, I mean, not that it wasn't going to be expensive before with Keanu Reeves attached, but this is, Dan, this is a sweeping project. So no outlet here, but it was, they tried it as a movie. Now they've had a couple of different writers attached to it. And it's just... In our year of 2023, when everyone is cutting back on budgets and abandoning projects for tax write-offs, et cetera, and possible Writers Guild strike coming in May, it's a big question mark who's going to make this. And if I was going to wager a bet, it would be on on those who really haven't seen the cutbacks hit yet, Amazon and Apple. That's just my bet, and it's based on absolutely zero intel. I mean, Apple seems like a, a likely enough home. They've tried doing serial killer type period things before. That was kind of what Shining Girls uh, was. And, you know, that was definitely a show that was there. Uh, the the thing I think of is less Snowpiercer with this one and uh, more The Alienist, which had all of its different incarnations where at various points it was going to be a, a feature film and it had huge name directors, Philip Kaufman, et cetera, attached to direct and various big name actors attached. And then it bounced around to several different TV homes and it took a while and it did finally make it to television. But that's another historically backed serial killer 
type procedural and the alienist absolutely looked like it was an expensive show the alienist was not a perfect show but it had interesting things and it proved that you can make things like this uh it's it's possible it just costs a lot of money and apparently can take anywhere in the neighborhood of five to 10 to 15 years to actually find a home for it. So who knows? Looking forward to this one in 2030. <laughs> yes, for episode 1000 of TV's Top 5. Leslie, if we're still making TV's Top 5 in 2030, um, it either means something has gone very, very right or very, very wrong. I'm not completely sure which, uh, but it did definitely. Let's, let's cross our fingers and hope. Also, who wouldn't want to kind of be the next per the person to get whatever the next Jeremy Allen White vehicle is. So definitely wouldn't surprise me that people would want that because he's, you know, he's obviously won the Golden Globe. Uh, he's probably on the verge of winning an Emmy, though, again, all of the various different comedies that are ending this year could put a wrinkle into that. But still, who wouldn't want to be in the Jeremy Allen White business at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Number three. Next up, when we told you at the top of the show, we're going to have another season in review segment. And well, that's what we're doing here. So spoiler alert for those of you who have not watched season one and the finale of Peacock's Poker Face, because, yep, we're going there. One of the year's most talked about shows, the Natasha Leone vehicle Poker Face, has concluded its first season with, for me, Dan, it, this was a white knuckle inducing finale. And it also sets up the previously announced second season of the series from Ryan Johnson. So I loved season one. Not that I'm a critic. There you go. Drink. But what did you think, Dan? You're the critic here. You tell me. I am. Uh, and this week, this segment is going to be just me uh, for our Last of Us segment next week. I'm surely going to be joined by somebody where we'll, we'll figure that out. Somebody to bounce things off of, but I'm happy to just let you talk about what you like as well. Even if you're not a critic. Um, no. So what, so what I reviewed the show, I, I said that I liked the show very much. I didn't love it as much as some people did, but I liked it very much. And, um, I have to say that I thought that the second half of the season, um, was, was probably far superior to the first, I, I think. I think that there was a lot of kind of figuring out the format, figuring out the stories, things like that in the first half of the season. I, I kind of leave the pilot out of the equation. The pilot is, is its own creature. It's, it's really not, you know, it's, it's the setup. It's the, it's the setup, but tonally and, and physically and all of that, it doesn't really feel like the rest of the series until we get back to episode 10, which was what, uh, Ryan Johnson and company were, saying the entire time was going to be the case is that it was going to be standalone until the moment it ceased to be standalone. So yeah, the second, so the critics were sent up to episode six to start the season. Episode six was of course the Alan Barkin, Tim Meadows episode. And, and that was one that I liked very much. Um, I really liked the future of sport, uh, which was the Tim Blake Nelson episode. I thought that was, um, was really good. And Tim Blake Nelson is just always great when he pops up for however long he did, he does. I thought the Orpheus syndrome uh, with Nick Nolte and Cherry Jones, the episode that was directed and co-written by uh, Natasha Leone, I, I thought that was probably my favorite of the of the season. I thought all of the I thought all of the inside Hollywood things uh, in that episode were fantastic. Uh, Natasha Leone running around in her Cocteau uh, horse costume was was just brilliant. There there was just so much good stuff in that episode. Uh, then Escape from Shit Mountain, which was the Joseph Gordon-Levitt episode. The penultimate, yeah. The penultimate episode. I, I thought that was a 
a really good episode that to me was somewhat marred by a lot of the special effects. Uh, I thought that the I thought that the car accident special effect wasn't very good. I thought there were a lot of of not great special effects things in that episode, but I thought the episode itself. I thought the almost Agatha Christie uh, people caught in a in a snowdrift in a enclosed cabin kind of thing. I thought I thought that was a blast. And watching Joseph Gordon-Levitt, former TV's top five guest, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, uh, watching watching him be an asshole is always entertaining. He is he is very very good at that kind of thing. And then the finale really did bring it back around in in ways that were fairly satisfying. I really enjoyed uh, Ron Perlman. I thought that was a a fun appearance, even if you have to suspend some amount of disbelief to figure out how Ron Perlman and his genetics make Adrian Brody and his genetics as a son. But, you know, that's willing suspension of disbelief. And I am a willing belief or disbelief suspender. Uh yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was a good finale. Um, I, I, you said it was white knuckly. I, I don't know because when you have a penultimate episode in which your main character is put on the brink of death as many times as the penultimate episode put Charlie, it's hard to then do a finale and make it have comparable stakes because you had your star get hit by a car, thrown under a tree, and stabbed basically to death in the previous episode. So there was really nowhere that it could have gone to put that character in more jeopardy. At a certain point, Charlie Kale is, if not immortal, verging on immortal. That would have to be a different... Yeah, you've got <laughs> Benjamin Bratt, like, who's been pursuing her. Just You're just dreading when he finally catches her. And uh, my, my knuckles are wide just talking about it. Huh, okay. I, I don't I, know. I thought it was great. I mean, honestly, although uh, my favorite part of the finale is any scene between Natasha Leone and Clea Duvall, because I loved what I'm a cheerleader and these two have remained friends ever since. It's such a, a great movie and their dynamic is so good. They're, of course, playing siblings here. I would watch the hell out of that, out of a spinoff of that. Just them, like a prequel of their like adolescence. Like, sign me up for that. And, and please bring that character back for season two. I have to say, a prequel of their adolescence probably would not be able to star Natasha Leone. No, but like something that leads up to to their falling out. You know, I mean, look, come on, that's Hollywood can can do magic, right? You can, you know, put these these two in in uh, you know in attire from like the the nineties or something. I don't know. Come on, I, I don't disagree, and I loved seeing them together. Also, I have to add, apparently, this show was cast entirely based on on uh, Ryan Johnson and the casting department listening to TV's top five. I mean, once you have uh, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Clea Duvall, and Natasha Leone all starring in this show, pretty much we're we're the hub of the entire thing. I, I hate to I hate to make us sound all vain, glorious, and whatnot, but yes, we we made this show. Damn it. Um, <laughs> never mind on that one, whether or not it's true. No, I, I liked the finale. I liked where it pushed things going back. Um, and with the different Perlman, with Rhea, with Rhea Perlman as the voice of the the mobster who she's now going to be on the run from. We'll see if that's actually something that they choose to continue with or if that's just kind of a, a partial tease. Not that that would be in any way a problem if if she played a role in the next season. No, I liked it very much. So, okay, are you saying the, that the finale was your favorite episode then of the season? Um, you know, I, I like the Cherry Jones episode too because of obviously all the, the Hollywood stuff, but um, it, honestly, it was just a great show, like full stop. 
Like every episode was entertaining. I just got my mom turned on to this show. She's, I think, halfway through it after a day. Uh, but like, I, I, you know, to me, it's one of the year's best so far. Dan, would you agree or disagree? Um, I would agree. It's it's early in the year, so you know, <laughs> who kn- who knows from what actually counts as the year's best. But no, I I enjoyed this show very much. I I thought that the the first half of the season, some of the episodes, either. The murder wasn't necessarily quite creative enough or the guest stars weren't given quite enough to do or the resolution was a little bit abrupt. These are sort of splitting hairs kind of things. It's just the reason why I go back again to the liking, not loving of the show. Um, but I thought that the second half again, I thought that the that the particularly in the last three episodes, that the that everything tightened up. Very, very nicely. I thought that particularly, again, in the last couple episodes, the stakes were raised in interesting ways. I, I just really enjoyed the uh, the Nick Nolte, Terry Jones episode so much. I thought that episode was such a a strange and loopy and specific thing for them to have wanted to do. And also, again, for people who have, you know have listened to any interview with Natasha Leone, including our podcast, obviously, um. It, it's just one of those episodes that really does feel like its concerns and considerations were plucked from her head. And I find her head to be such a a fun and bizarre place to be that I like that they were able to do that. Yeah. And you can go back and listen to our interview with Natasha Leone, where she talks about Russian doll. And I'm pretty sure we talked to her about poker face at the tail end of that. That would be in episode 165 from April 22nd. 2022. We definitely did because we talked about her. We talked about her fixation slash fascination on uh, Peter Falk and Columbo and and how Poker Face would play into that. Though she was a she was a little coy. She could have given us more details on Poker Face if she wanted to, but she was talking about Russian dolls. But we also did ask uh, talk to her about but I'm a cheerleader. So as as we did with Clea Duval when she was yeah. on the podcast. So once again, it all just comes together too. Yeah, and you can go back and listen to our Clea Duval interview from episode 189 from October 14th of last year. And that was, of course, pegged to f- high school over on Freebie, Freebie, which still, again, Freebie, what's up with the high school renewal? Anyway, I digress. Let's close out this segment, Dan, and talk about Emmys. Where do you think Poker Face stands a chance of getting nominated? Uh, it's a good question, and uh, it, this this goes back to one of the mailbag questions we got, and I didn't answer that part. Uh, we the mailbag question was about White Lotus being submitted as drama and Poker Face being submitted as comedy. And as soon as the podcast dropped, uh, friend of the five, Alan Seppenwall, immediately messaged me and asked why I didn't answer the question the the second half of the question about Poker Face. Uh, and the the answer to that would have been that I was perfectly fine with the show being submitted as comedy. Obviously, some episodes very much are not. But I think because of the tone set by Natasha Leone's character and kind of the lightness on its feet, despite the whole murder of the week thing, I'm okay with this being submitted as comedy. If they'd submitted it as drama, I wouldn't have fought that. I think from a a practical standpoint and actually getting recognition standpoint, comedy was simply much more where it belonged. And so I completely and totally understand. Uh, So yeah, totally fine with that. As to where it's likely to get recognition, I I feel like they definitely ought to be able to push Natasha Lyonne hard for lead actress. I I think she is completely worthy. And and particularly in the last couple episodes, I just thought she was 
tremendous. I always like her, but I thought she was really extra good. I, I think probably in this day and age, you can get some attention for anything with Ryan Johnson's name on it. So the fact that he he directed um, the Orpheus Syndrome. No, he directed Natasha Leone directed the Orpheus Syndrome. Ryan Johnson directed the pilot in the second episode and then Escape from Shit Mountain. I thought uh, Janiska Bravo's direction on the finale was also very good. Ryan Johnson's script was very good. So I think it's going to be Natasha Leone front and center. Maybe if people want to play favorites on a, a script or direction that they liked the most, it could have some value there. And then some guest acting. I, I feel like they ought to be able to get a, a nomination or two for for guest acting as well. My leaning would be towards, again, uh, Nolte and Jones. Um, but there are other very fine options. I just think they have the advantage of kind of being not necessarily the biggest names, but the most awardy type names. You, you can kind of build a campaign around either of them. And I can see the value of that. I, I would probably guess it's not going to be a a series contender but really? it that, that's just that's just a guess like well no okay sorry let me backtrack will it be a series contender yes it will absolutely be a contender i i would guess it's going to be tough to get it a, a nomination uh just because again lots and lots of tv and Barry, ted lasso you gotta uh, imagine will be in there abbott elementary i'm sure will be in there the bear Bear, um, so yeah. yeah, there's there's already there, like there really is the the on both the comedy and the drama side, there's kind of an entrenched top tier. I would say that with on the drama side, it's probably like if there are going to be eight nominees, I think that there are like seven entrenched nominees on the drama side. I think that on the comedy side, it might be closer to to five maybe, and so that leaves a couple slots. And Poker Face could get there. And this is absolutely the kind of show that because people aren't going to feel as if it's been spoiled for them because there's nothing, you know, yes, we said this was a spoilery segment, but we haven't really spoiled anything that's going to impact your viewership of the show. And I think similarly, people will be finding this show for the next couple months. And it's such an easy show to watch. Like you mentioned yeah, that your mother just absolutely. roared through half of it. And I think that will benefit. I think without any question, the fact that people can just be like, oh, I'll watch an episode of Poker Face now, whatever, which is how it was designed. It was designed as a throwback in that specific respect. I, I think that, you know, I think that will help it. I think I just think it's going to be right on sort of the line between whatever the eighth show is and a couple of the other shows below it. But I, I think it'll... I think it'll be in the conversation and I hope it gets some recognition because I do I do think it's a really good show. Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Number four. 
If you listened to last week's podcast, you heard my very positive review for HBO's Rain Dogs, which stars Daisy Mae Cooper as an economically challenged single mother trying to raise her daughter with an assist from her eccentric band of buddies, including her self-destructive gay bestie Selby, fresh out of prison. This week, we're joined by Rain Dogs creator Cash Carraway, who is making her series-creating debut here. She's the writer of the acclaimed memoir Skint Estate and plays including The Last Peep Show in Soho. Welcome to the podcast, Cash. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So I want to go back to, to the beginning here. It, it was initially announced in 2021 that Daisy Mae Cooper was going to star in a drama adaptation of your memoir, Skint Estate, and that it was even going to be called Cash Carraway. How did that autobiographical drama evolve into a comedy that in the press notes you emphasize isn't autobiographical? <laughs> well, first, I should say that Cash Carraway was never going to be the name of the show. It was uh, um because there was no title at the time, the BBC announced it as Cash Carraway Working Title, which sounds incredibly narcissistic on my part. Um, but that that was never the title. But you're <laughs> right, because it was announced as um, an adaptation of a memoir that I wrote. Um, and as I was writing it, um, literally just before that BBC announcement, it was really bad timing. I had said, I don't want to, I don't want to do this. I it it was so exposing I really I don't dislike the memoir but I dislike the fact that I wrote it I dislike the <laughs> fact that it was, it, it was sort of my only route into um making money from from writing I was only ever allowed to write about myself and um yeah so I said I can't do this it's too exposing is there any way I can write another show? And everyone was like, "What? Another show? What? What are you? You know, what are you going on about?" And I'm like, "I can set it within that world, and I can tell a a story about people who live in that world, but I don't want to tell my story." And I went away and I wrote another two scripts, the first two episodes, and thankfully HBO said. Okay, let's do it. And Daisy was still on board as well. Daisy was still happy to do it. So, yeah, it sort of worked out well in a weird way. So once you decided that this wouldn't be a straightforward adaptation, how did you decide which autobiographical elements you still wanted to include here? Well, of course, there's like lots of me in there, but I'm not Costello and Iris isn't my daughter and none of the other characters I mean, the thing with the memoir, I'm not sure if you've read it, but there there wasn't really much of a story going on. It was just a load of thoughts <laughs> that I had about my predicaments and, and you know, my, my situation. So I could kind of start from scratch, really. And I could take Costello to places that I could never go personally. And, you know, when you're making television, you want it to be exciting and you want the characters to be transgressive and immoral. I certainly do. And um, it gave me the freedom to kind of say and do whatever I wanted. Because you, because if you're doing an adaptation, you really do have to protect yourself. It's you know it's scary out there. You give yourself to journalists, and they will they will take from you. So that that's certainly what I found in the UK. So um, yeah, it was just it was the freedom to be able to tell interesting stories. You say it gives you the chance to take the characters' places, and and rather literally, the story is to some degree 
a road trip or a location jumping structured story? When did you find the structure that would actually make this a series? <laughs> I was kind of like winging it in many ways because it was um, the first two episodes were um, written, ready to go. And then we started shooting. And um, I was just writing it as as we were going along. And I, I guess that kind of helped with the messy nature of it and the chaotic experiences that these characters were having because I was, you know, making them up on the fly, as it were. So um, if it seems unstructured, <laughs> that's exactly what I <laughs> I mean, that's that's very much not the way that TV is made, at least here, where you've got scripts that go through layers and layers of notes and approvals and drafts and everything else. I mean, that kind of freedom is incredibly rare, especially for a first time show creator. I mean, was there any trepidation on behalf of the, of the network of either HBO or the BBC when it came time to like, really, you're writing this as you as we go? Yeah, they were very they they had a lot of faith in it. And it did go through a lot of drafts. You know, what you're seeing isn't, you know, first or second draft. It was it was an unrelenting script writing experience. So um, it was it was written over like a four month period. We started shooting the first two episodes and then I started working on the second block, which is episode three, four, five, six. And for me, actually getting seeing what the actors were doing with episodes one and two and getting the rushes back. We could see that we were onto something good and it helped sort of guide um, the way I was writing those other episodes. I think the only sort of kind of conflict or sort of dramatic moment happened with me personally writing it was episode seven and eight when um, I had 21 days to write both of those episodes. So there was, I mean, it was a, it was a very, it was incredibly sort of isolated and stressful experience, but it did give me full creative control of where those characters went. And thankfully, HBO and the BBC trusted me, or, or so it seems. <laughs> well, what were the conversations that they wanted to have with you once you said, "Okay, this is not this is not the memoir, so this is a, this is something different." Here's how I'm going to do with it. What directions did they push you? Because I feel like. If you're doing a memoir, there's a limit to how much anyone can tell you about how you're telling the story. It's, as you say, it's your story. So I assume they might have pulled back. Once you were making it fictionalized, did they push forward and start giving input in different ways? Well, I think because because they wanted an authentic show about authentic working class people, I sort of did have that freedom. And, you know, television in the UK certainly is made by um often very upper class people um so only i knew who those characters were so I, I did have a pushback in that respect which was i've lived this life i've lived with amongst these people i know how they would react how they would talk um, and the kind of things they would get up to so i did you know that's that's how um it sort of happened really that's why i was allowed to do it as you were fictionalizing, did you find yourself more frequently sanitizing the things from your real life or making things worse for dramatic effect? <laughs> You've got to go worse, haven't you? Um, I mean, I mean, the, the opening of the show, for example, that's not ever something that's that's happened to me. And I've never lived in a perverse cupboard. And, <laughs> um, you know, I'm trying to I'm tr there's not many things that Costello does that I've actually done. but. I have thought about them 
and I have um you know I, I I worked in some of the jobs that she I worked in a peep show uh, but you know not when um not until I, I worked in a peep show before I had my daughter um so I'd done some of the things that she'd done and lived in some of the places she'd lived but I'd never gone to the extremes that she has I, I mean, personally I consider myself more of a Selby type I do want to talk about uh, about the title for a second you know can you talk about what where where the title came from? Honestly, I mean, is it how much of this was based on, on you listening to a lot of Tom Waits, or was it was there more to the story? Yeah, I mean, I love I love Tom Waits. Um, I don't actually massively love the album Rain Dogs. Actually, <laughs> um, I'm more of a closing time type of person. But um, you know, just the image that it evokes, really. You know, Rain Dogs drenched in the door nowhere to go also um actually the, the original title i was going to call it was all shook down which is um a replacements album just because of the cover you've got those two sort of stray dogs and then um yeah rain dogs seemed seemed like a like a better title really what point in the process did hbo become involved and what kind of notes did they have more specifically because this was going to be something that that also was available for american audiences yeah um well see they they were always talking about comedy we've got to put more comedy in there we've got to make it funnier um so that was the notes I was getting from them. The BBC, obviously, the notes from them were, let's have more drama. Let's let's feel the pain of these people. So it's incredibly conflicting. Um, what was the, there was the first part of the question, which was, sorry. When, when they became involved. When, when they became involved, involved. yes. Yes, they, they um, it was pretty much um, after the BBC announcement. So it was, it was around the time of the transition of going from a memoir for it to becoming an original show. So um, they they were there from the beginning of it turning into um, Rain Dogs, like an original original piece. But their notes, I mean, their notes were so thorough and, um, you know, lots of the humour is sort of um, lost in translation because, you know, I, I really, really love those, um, those are British shows. And they're always very dark, sort of like the Royal Family and sort of Chris Morris's stuff. Um, Carolina Hearn, Jimmy McGovern, um, you know, they're always very, very dark, um, but very, you know, The Office, it's really, really funny, but, you know, the pathos is there. Um, so I guess, I guess it's just that the British humour is very, very different. So there was, there was kind of lots missed, really. Uh, I sort of had to explain a lot about how poverty works was another thing. Um, but we got there. We got there in the end. <laughs> now I want to know what kind of things you had to actually explain to the HBO people about how poverty works. Well, g give us an example or two. Oh, God. Well, you know, so, for example, on the day that um, Costello gets evicted, they didn't really, I guess, not not how poverty works, that's wrong, about how sort of Brit the British working class are. And um, so Costello gets evicted and then Nikki says to her, oh, I heard you've got evicted. Well, they were like, well, how would she know? You know, in London, how could how could you possibly know? But I had to explain that on in, in sort of like working class housing, everyone knows your business. 
and um you know you you walk you walk out of your flat everyone knows the argument you've had in that flat that morning because you live so close together everyone knows if you've been arrested recently everyone knows if you're getting evicted and everyone will talk about it and they will make a joke about it and um you know make you feel silly and i think another thing actually was the the way that the characters spoke to each other because um if you look if you read the scripts it sounds very harsh it looks you know the language looks incredibly hurtful you know what what each character is saying to each other um but once they got in once those words got in the hands of the actors they started to understand it a little bit more because the actors they they knew these characters and they soft yeah you know, the suddenly that, that that really harsh dialogue became incredibly soft so um i think that the more the rushes came in and the way the character the way that the actors understood the char characters they sort of began to understand what the show was a little bit more so less in a plot sense and more in a, a psychological and character driven sense how is costello different from cash <laughs> oh come on <laughs> that's such a difficult question she's not me she's absolutely not me she i think she's nicer she's just far more nicer than me um you know she has real empathy for people that <laughs> you know i'm making myself sound really awful here but you know that scene where she's with the moms and she's trying to explain how she's working the job in the peep show and they're they've been really cold to her at first they've been really harsh but she sort of wins them over by just being nice and you know wanting to fit in i think she i think costello wants to fit in far more than than i do but, you know she um she doesn't she doesn't give up and i think that's something that we share and i think that's the sort of fundamentals of the show is that she keeps going and going and going and i think that's true of any sort of working class mother you keep going to provide for your child if Costello wins people over with niceness, what do you win people over with instead? Oh, I don't. I just just hide away writing scripts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, obviously, you know, talking about shows that that take on working class families, you know, that that's been kind of a uh, trend is the wrong word, but I think you get what I'm what I mean by it. You know, when at least here, when when the Roseanne revival came back a few years ago it really opened the door and, and a big strong ratings here for it, obviously before she imploded her career, yeah, yeah. you know, even the Connors, as it continues on without her, the, the continued success of that show shows that there is a thirst among viewership here anyway, to see families that are struggling. And I, I'm curious, you know, for you and some of the stuff that, that, that you watch abroad or in the UK, you know, has it been the same experience? Is is there more of a thirst for a depiction of working class families? Because so much of what we see, at least here in the States, is, you know, affluent families, right? Yeah. So there's yeah. very, very few uh, uh, shows like yours here. Yeah, there's there's very few shows um, like that over here as well. Um, I think when, when we tend to see working class people on TV in the UK, it's usually like really awful poverty porn shows like benefit street and shows where bailiffs turn up on a, on a family's door and you know we actually see real people really suffering and you know only to a, a couple of years ago there was a show called the jeremy carl show i don't know if you've ever heard of that where 
you know, poor people would go on TV. And it, it was sort of a bit like Jeremy Cole, but really dirty, like a really ho- more horrific version of that. Um, so, like, for me, I don't see, I don't feel like I'm telling a story of poverty. I feel like I'm telling a story about a working class woman who is trying to be something. She just happens to be in this, in this, this difficult situation when we first meet her so um i'm keen to like avoid all those tropes of um you know when we see people in poverty we always have to show this like immense pain and i think that's actually that's that's what we that's with costello she doesn't show that pain at the beginning she she really really holds it back she tries to remain strong she tries to kind of stand on her own two feet but it just becomes you know, impossible for her to do that. So normally when we see, you know, working class characters in this country, they are, they do tend to be in great need. And they're usually through the eyes of of a middle class writer. And I think you get a very different experience of a working class family when when it's written by someone who feels sorry for them. You know, I don't feel sorry for the working class because I am working class and I've, you know, I've always been part of that world. So the, the, the way that I'm writing about the working classes with joy and spirit, I hope. Well, I think it's interesting because, uh, you know, kitchen sink realism has become such a a thing in British entertainment, and, and it's been a key British genre since, I, I guess, the, the 50s. And, and when it started, it was presented as this incredibly progressive thing, that you actually were looking at blue-collar households, blue-collar families, that you were examining poverty. But part of the show's, your show's perspective and part of Costello's perspective is significantly more skeptical. I, I'm, I'm curious, when you look at the things that you're pushing against at the genre that you didn't want to be in, are there things that you still think have value to that genre or or is it time for for a new paradigm, for a new version no, of this story? No, I, I do think there is value to it. I mean, like, you can't beat Ken Loach. I, I mean, he makes beautiful films that, you know, have a, you know, a social message, a political message often, and he does it really well. But then I think you find people want to tell those working-class stories in the same way that Ken Loach does because they're inspired by him, but they end up becoming really like mawkish and saccharine because they're coming from another layer. Like Ken Loach is a political filmmaker who who has a real love and understanding for the working class and a need to seek justice. But then if you rip that layer off and a, a filmmaker comes along or a director comes along and wants to emulate that, that it almost ends up becoming pitying of the, the subjects. And, um, you know, I was, that was the one thing that I would always say in production meetings, it can't look like Ken Loach. And I know that sometimes it does, you know, because, because you, for me, I feel I've made 80% of the show that I set out to make. And I think that's a pretty high percentage. I don't think any creator gets everything they want because we have to tell the story in a, in an authentic way. And it can't, you know, it can't be as glossy as I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be, I wanted it to look like Patrick Melrose. I wanted this working class woman to be in this, to have that same gloss that that show had. But you can't have that because it's not completely realistic. And when you've got someone who's been evicted from an estate, it's going to look like a council estate. And to many, that will look sad. But to me, it looks joyous because this character is so full of life. So that's how I've tried to fight against that kind of backdrop of, of Ken Loach. And I'm not saying Ken Loach like it's a dirty word. I'm <laughs> saying it in a, in a way that I just wanted to 
sort of move on from that. I think Shameless manages to do that as well. Shameless looks Ken Loachy, but injects the spirit of of the working class and humour and, um, you know, real character. And I think, and that's, and that's what this was really, you know, it's not plot driven. It is a real character piece. And certainly Costello and Selfie, I, I really wanted to examine that really messy relationship sort of over the class divide. And you've said a couple times that Ken Loach is a political filmmaker, and I think that's unquestionably true. I think when you look at poverty, when you look at the government support systems associated with it, there's always going to at least be ideology, whether or not there's politics. How do you kind of look at the difference between ideologically looking at this rather than looking at it from a political standpoint? Well, I look at it from a chip on my shoulder, I think. And, you know, I, I'm i not as angry as I used to be because I have a nice life now. But these characters, you know, Costello, for example, is angry. And, yeah, it, it, it's, it, I mean, Rain Dogs isn't political at all, but I think it could be mistaken as being political. Um, but really, it's just it's just written by someone who has experienced that kind of system and is is angry about it, really. <laughs> well, how how much anger did you really want to manifest here? Because I, I feel like I feel like there is definitely anger at the same time, though. I feel like it could be angrier. <laughs> You think rain dogs could be angrier? Yeah, sure. <laughs> because well, yeah. I, because I think you I think you could I think maybe there could be again that's maybe where the political side comes from where you actually start pointing fingers at politician X or political party X or or policy X and say okay here's where everything went to shit you know and I don't think that's the story you wanted to tell here. No, no. I mean, I'm not a moralist. You know, um, like Jimmy McGovern does that brilliantly. You know, he finds a political point or an injustice that he really wants to say something about. And he tells it through, you know, beautiful writing and brilliant characters and kind of, he can be quite heavy handed with it. And I didn't want to, and and that's not an insult. I mean, he's one of my favorite writers, but he, he lets you know what he thinks. And I didn't, I didn't want to let the audience know how I felt. I wanted the, I wanted them to feel the characters. I wanted them to feel Costello's pain and I wanted them to feel her frustration you know this fact that she kept she does she keeps trying and she keeps going on and she just can't seem to make any money and she can't seem to be taken seriously um and I think that's that's what it's about really rather than it being political it's about how working class people not really allowed to ever become something you know and how and I don't I guess you get this less in America but if someone tries to become something in England, they're sort of ridiculed and held back for a long time. And like it's that sort of um, gatekeeper mentality. And that's what it's fighting against, really, as opposed to the government. It's, it's smaller than that. It's, you know, it's not it's not about, oh, isn't it awful how, you know, working class single moms live in these horrible flats? It's more like, why can't they be something else? Let's talk a bit about the, about the cast and the characters. Um, I, I feel as if... Daisy is about to break out in the United States, but so far she hasn't. Like so far that we haven't seen all of the shows that have made her name uh over in the UK. But people here don't necessarily know her as a a creator star, etc. When you have 
a story that on one hand is very personal to you, but you also have a, a lead actor who is a writer herself. How do you make that alchemy work in a way that everyone's muscles feel like they're being used in the right way? Daisy was really respectful of, of the of the the script actually. She didn't ask to change anything. Um and that's, I was worried about that. She was like, oh, yeah, because she is such a brilliant writer. Have you seen this country? But we have we we got the remake. We have Welcome to Flash <laughs> in the state, which was which yeah. was remade from it. Uh, right. But I'm not sure at this point if this country is available anywhere to watch. But we have uh, she's got a show that's premiering on Hulu in the states next month. So am I being unreasonable? Yeah, that's that's really good. But this country is a masterpiece. I mean, it's um, oh, it's just wonderful writing. It's it's hilarious. Abs- it's it's just absolutely brilliant. If you can find a way to see it, you must. And you know, having seen that, and then having Daisy on board, I was like, oh, you know, am I kind of up to the gig? Because, you know, she is so brilliant. Um, but, you know, she took it on as an acting job and she, you know, she read every line as it was written. You know, she, um, there was sort of no conflict there because of that. And, you know, and we are seeing her in a way we've never, ever seen her before. You know, she is, she's just a brilliant dramatic actress. I mean, you're in, you're in for a treat to get all of her stuff coming in you're gonna yeah you'll love her well okay so you but she signs on thinking she's playing you basically um when you told her okay you're not playing me anymore did you get the sense that she was still kind of playing you that she was watching you very closely and trying to steal things (laughs) no and you know what it was really helpful actually because i have a very very strong southeast london accent and when i was doing the adaptation originally you know it was full-on south london it was a real kind of southeast london jolly up um and i think the accent would have been kind of comical coming from her maybe not for you guys so much because you're not aware of her work but over in England you know she has this really thick west country accent um and for her to be doing a southeast london accent would have been hilarious it would have been like um an episode of eastenders i think you know it would, it would have it, it would have been silly um not to say she couldn't have done it she could have done but for me having her embody her sort of natural tone really really helped um, and I think I think it just made it easier for for her because she wasn't having to represent me. She wasn't having to pick up on my mannerisms and all of that. I mean, that would have been awful. Oh, could you imagine? It was just to be on set and seeing someone playing you. I think it would just be absolutely awful. I mean, she she probably would have been brilliant, but I'm I'm glad that that didn't happen. So, what were the challenges of making these characters? especially Selby and Costello, as messy as you wanted them to be without making them so messy that they ran the risk of alienating viewers. Yeah. Well, there was a, there were, there was um, more violence in the original, like in the, in the early drafts, much more, you know, more physical violence between them, more talk of violence between them, seeing them attack other people together. Um, and it just, it just wouldn't have worked. It just it would have alienated people. But I think wh- when you do a first draft or a second draft, you go big, don't you? You throw everything into it. You can, you know, can you imagine how big those early drafts were? Because it is, <laughs> you know, it's melodramatic and it is a chaotic world that they inhabit. But yeah, it was just a case of, and you know, don't you? When you read something, you're like, this is this is too much, and you just rein it in and bring it back. And you know, and the notes from HBO and BBC helped help to do that. 
you know, we want to see these characters be immoral and messy as they navigate their world, but we need to relate to them as well. We need to feel attracted to them and want to follow them on that journey. So, yeah. Specifically with the Selby-Costello relationship, the show goes in pendulum form as to whether the relationship between them is toxic or nurturing. And that's that's obviously the question you're supposed to be asking throughout. I'm curious how your own sympathies or perspectives shifted as you brought these characters together and tore them apart and brought them together and tore them apart. Well, I mean, I love those characters so much and they... They are really toxic and they're, they're toxic apart. They're toxic, even more toxic together, but they do love each other. And when that love is genuine, that sort of toxicity elevates it in a way. And it, it's almost romantic. I mean, I think I think their relationship is incredibly romantic. I think many people would say, well, it's, it's disgusting. They're violent to each other. They should get away from each other. But, you know, they love their family and they want to bring it together they want to be normal and they try their hardest they just can't you know and it's um for me it felt it felt very real because real love is messy and you know you only ever say the most horrific disgusting things to the people that you truly love so for for me it doesn't feel there are abusive elements, but it doesn't feel like a like a typical abusive relationship. You know, I certainly didn't want to go down the route of making Selby being a full on villain, which I think would have been so easy to do, but it would have been so boring. And, and sort of the next level of how to kind of find the balance. What is then the complication? of taking these toxic characters who are hurting each other in these loving and toxic ways and plunking a child into the middle of it and and what you can put a child in the middle of when you're storytelling. Yeah, I was really careful of that, actually, to to make sure that, that the Iris character was doing something different, you know, trying to, if they're getting up to no good, she's with Gloria, or if they're fighting she's she's off playing the piano she's she's got she's she's doing something to sort of distract her but at the same time I wanted to also show that it was affecting her but because I, I think in, the, in those kind of toxic slightly abuse, abusive relationships you know you do try and hide it you would try and hide it and it's only natural that parts of that do seep through and I wanted I wanted Iris to be sort of on the sort of boundaries of it, to have an idea of what was going on, but not be fully engrossed in it. Because I think, you know, that would be a completely different type of story. There was a lot of talk in like early meetings where, you know, is Costello a bad mom and we can't portray Costello as a bad mom. Um I personally don't think she is. I have read some reviews that say she is. <laughs> um, but you know, I don't I don't think she is. I think I, she's trying her best in you know extreme circumstances and that's why I wanted to make that love between the characters so unique and so because I think the love they have for Iris is incredibly consuming and um she she has a very extraordinary life but it is filled with love and I think that's that is at the very center of it 
Just, you know, tell me if you, if you disagree. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm curious, were there any awkward conversations you had to have either with Fleur, who plays Iris, or with her parents about the things that she was being proximate to in the production or the things that she had to have an understanding of that was happening in the background, even if she wasn't actually present for it happening on set? Fleur, who plays Iris, is incredibly um, grown up. You know, it's, it's quite scary. Uh, but, you know, she had her mom was there. And, you know, we, we spoke openly about, about everything. Her mum had read all of the scripts and um, was with her at all times. You know, obviously, there's a lot of you know, swearing in the in the piece. And you know, when we were filming, Fleur was only 12. So we did, we, we did have to protect her in, in, in many ways. But I don't feel that I don't feel that the violence um, or, or the dynamic between Costello and Selby is so extreme that it that it would scare a child actor. It's, um, I think, yeah, we, we explained it to her. We, we, we put things in place. You know, as we, as we wrap, but I, I tend to ask this question for a lot of our guests because, you know, the TV landscape is, is such that you never know if, if something is designed to be an ongoing series or if it really is closed ended and, you know, a one and done type thing. But how do you look at, at rain dogs? Is this something, is this a world that you want to revisit? Is this something that you're expecting to get? picked up for another season, et cetera? Well, obviously we have to wait for all of those things like viewing figures and, and how it's received and stuff. But when I conceived it, in my mind, it, it um, is a trilogy. And, um, you know, I, I know, I know where we get to at the end of that trilogy, at the end of Act 3. I know where we're going. And I know I have an idea of the bits in between. But it's um, I don't want to start writing it until we, you know, know for sure. But yeah, the yeah, I I could stay with these characters. I absolutely adore these characters. And it feels for me like we're only just getting started. And we do like to wrap these interviews with the same question. Outside of cuts of your own show, what have you been watching and enjoying? I'm really late to the game with this, but um, I've been watching Better Call Saul, and. I've been I've been binging it like crazy over the past month or so, and I, I swear it is a masterpiece. It's it's one of the best things I've ever seen. I honestly think it's up there with The Sopranos and Succession. I think it's just an extraordinary script, and Bob Odenkirk is well, just just a brilliant actor. I absolutely love it. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Cash. Thank you so much for having me. Rain Dogs premiered March 6th on HBO. New episodes air Monday nights. And of course, the series is available to stream on HBO Max. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with a critic's corner. This week, it's pretty crowded, as we talked about last week. Tons of stuff debuting this March. But this week, we've got Hulu debuts the Onyx Collective series Unprisoned. The Oscars air Sunday on ABC. Dan will have a segment probably wrapping up the winners in the show itself next week. Then you've got The Last of Us season finale airing Sunday on HBO. Again, another season in review episode coming up next week. Ted Lasso is back on Apple. Shadow and Bone returns at Netflix. And shameless plug alert, conflict of interest be damned, my wife's show, Gotham Knights, debuts on the CW. It is a very, very, very exciting week in the old Goldberg's Goldberg House Abrams. I said that wrong. In the House Abrams Goldberg household. Go, Natalie, indeed. Yeah. Proud wife I alert. 
I also will be taking a conflict of interest approach to Gotham Knights, but yay, Natalie. Uh, th- yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff. And as Leslie mentioned, with South by Southwest coming up, um, I'm going to be reviewing a, a bunch of documentaries. And so I've had to watch some of those, including documentaries about Mary Tyler Moore and the notorious but curiously beloved uh, Star Wars holiday special, a full documentary on that. And those reviews will be in weeks to come. And then there are bunches and bunches and bunches of TV shows that are are premiering at South by um, stuff, including Netflix's Beef, FX's Mystery Shrouded Swarm, uh, et cetera. And some of these things I'll have. Reviews. Actually, Swarm is Amazon. Yeah. I see why you thought it was FX, because that's where Donald Glover used to be based. But accurate. Yes, now. it is Amazon's Swarm. Apologies. And not to be concerned with something called The Swarm, which is an international drama that premiered at Berlin. And I was getting pitched to review both of them at roughly the same time. And that was all very, very confusing, but not necessarily for anybody other than random TV critics. Uh, yeah, lots of stuff, lots and lots of TV stuff premiering. And so as a result, I've been kind of working ahead. And so haven't been able to watch as many of the things that are actually coming out this week. I watched a couple episodes of Unprisoned on Hulu, and it has interesting things about it. It simultaneously is trying to treat a very serious subject. Uh, the premise is that uh, a a psychologist or psychiatrist uh, played by Kerry Washington. Uh, her life is turned upside down when her prison recidivist father, uh, played by Delroy Lindo, gets out of jail once again and everything gets turned upside down. But lots of talk about the prison industrial complex and about various things of that note. I, I, I liked what it was trying to do. I thought there were occasional amusing moments. It's very much a comedy. It is it is a serious topic, but very much attempting to be funny. I don't know that I laughed at it at any point. And I think that there are a lot of different performances that aren't on the same page necessarily. I, I thought that Kerry Washington was maybe pushing for the comedy a little bit and not necessarily hitting it as frequently. Uh, whereas Delroy Lindo, who can pretty much do anything, is taking it very easy in a way that I mean is totally as a compliment. Like it, he's he is playing for some laughs, but he's not pushing for laughs. And I don't know that necessarily the performances always go together perfectly, but I can completely see how by episode six or seven, uh, everyone could be on the same page. I don't know that they necessarily were, but I found interesting things about it. I, I didn't find as many interesting things about School Spirits, which premiered on Thursday on Paramount Plus. Uh, it stars Peyton List, the new Peyton List of Cobra Kai, not to be confused with the slightly older Peyton List, still younger than I am, of uh, various TV shows, including Mad Men and at least a dozen different CW shows in my mind. Um, it's basically a, I called it a boo done it in my uh, review because it's about a high school girl who is murdered and has to solve her own murder from the afterlife with the help of a bunch of friendly ghosts from different decades who are trapped in limbo in her school. So it's basically CBS's ghosts, also BBC's ghosts, obviously, uh, with murder mystery attached. Uh, unfortunately, just, I, I don't know. As I said in my review, 
I'm getting ghost fatigue, and at a certain point, you have to do something interesting with the genre, other than just have ghosts be catalyst for more predictable procedural television genres. And this is very much in in that category. It's it's just not creative enough to to really be entertaining. Though I, I like Peyton List. I think she's good. I, I thought she was consistently pretty good on on Cobra Kai, etc. Um, so. So yeah, not not really my cup of tea, but also I will add that your fatigue with the ghost genre could be less than mine, and therefore you might enjoy it. That's Paramount Plus. And then ultimately the the big thing that people are likely to be talking about, and and since the embargo uh, will have lifted very very shortly before this podcast goes up, Ted Lasso season three, huzzah! Um, we have obviously talked on and on about whether or not this is the final season, and. You know, they're Apple's not saying it. Jason Sudeikis kind of is, but not exactly. Well, he's saying this is the end of the story. <laughs> exactly. Right? The story that they pitched. They pitched a three season plan for this. And if you go back to the development of this, they shopped the show. This was obviously based on the NBC Sports promo of that character of Ted Lasso. They shopped this project and were told no all over town until Apple stepped up and made it. And it was kind of a dark horse to succeed. And of course, here we are a couple Emmys later. And they pl- they pitched this out with a three-season plan. They're going to stick to that three-season plan, except what we know from re- my reporting last year when Sudeikis and everyone else attached with the show got new, new, rich new deals to stay on. A lot of those deals extend beyond season three. Brett Goldstein, who, of course, is a writer Excuse and executive me. producer. Excuse me. Sorry, two-time Emmy winner Brett Goldstein, Phew. who is, of course, a writer and executive producer on the show, also has his own overall deal with Warner Brothers, which produ- is the lead studio on Ted Lasso. So does Bill Lawrence. That's a new nine-figure deal for Bill Lawrence, who, of course, has Shrinking, which just got renewed as well. Those guys have have everything that they need to continue on with the show. Deals with Warner Brothers and a thirst from Apple and a thirst from Warner Brothers television. So if there's not a Ted Lasso season four, I'm going to guess there's going to be a Roy Kent season one. And if you go and look at my review, which is up on THR uh, now, one of the things I find a little bit kind of mixed about the new season, we've been sent four episodes, is that it really does feel like a show that probably should have had several of those spinoffs already. Like Apple should have had... Juno Temple's character at the end of last season leave for her own spinoff. She shouldn't have gone far, and there should have been guest appearances by Emmy winner Brett Goldstein and by Hannah Waddingham and all of that. But there should have been a separate Keeley off doing business and trying to start her PR firm series. Uh, instead, she's kind of half served by appearing on this show. I think that Roy Kent probably at a certain point needs a spinoff because at this point he's only being half served by the show. There are a lot of things and people that are only being half served. Uh, my review mentioned that, uh, for example, Sharon, the uh, the the shrink character played by Sarah Niles, I joked in my review that that character should have moved to the United States and joined the practice with the gang on shrinking because she would have fit in perfectly there. But there are so many characters on the show who are such good, fully rounded characters that they deserve their own backdrop. And instead, the show is kind of attempting to shoehorn 10 different spinoffs into one show. And 
it, it becomes a thing where the focus doesn't really hold up all the time. And so, you know, this is a show that started off as a half hour comedy and episodes grew longer and longer as it went along. The four episodes sent to critics, the first one is 44 minutes, the next two are 48 minutes, and the fourth one is 50 minutes. And I truly think that if you basically cut these episodes off at the halfway point of each one or slightly reorganized them, you have a a very solid eight episode season of television here just in the first four episodes. I, I feel like Apple should be attempting to to drag everything out and milk it because I don't think that would mean like milking the story. It would just be getting more value out of it. So there are lags to the season. There's a lot of redundancy to it. You know, we spent all of last season with Ted Lasso going through a sort of psychological crisis. He was he he was falling apart. He was having panic attacks. And and yet this season, when he's having problems, he's going around asking people, people, am I a mess? And my only reaction every time he did that, and he does it at least eight times, I think, is we know you're a mess. You know you're a mess. You were told you were a mess last season. Why are we doing this again? But the show is very clearly heading towards an end for the arc of that character. Like in the first five minutes of the first episode, he's like, look, I understand why I came and took this job. I understood why I was here, but why am I still here? And it's not a bad question. It's a reasonable question. And I think it's kind of the question that shows the show to either its endpoint or to the character's endpoint, whichever one it is. But, it, you know, whether whether people are going to feel like those are questions that suggest that the show is caught in a rut or just Ted Lasso is caught in a rut, I think it is more the latter uh, than the former. And by Ted Lasso, I mean the character. But it does feel like a lot of this is the show that we've seen before. Of course, that would make some sense because the show we've seen be before it's a show that people love, and it's a show that I generally love. And so uh, Roy Kent telling people to fuck off in various creative ways, several of them are among my favorite Roy Kent lines ever in these first couple episodes. And lots and lots of enjoyable supporting performances at this point. We're getting to know more and more of the players on the team and again, this is another thing that makes the show feel as if it, it really does need a spinoff uh, or seven spinoffs. So, you know, if last season was was primarily focused on on Sam and the first season was primarily focused on Jamie Tart, maybe this season has more of a focus on some people you haven't even given seconds thought to like Colin. Do, do you guys know which one Colin is? You might. He's the Welsh player on the team, played by Billy Harris. He's always been kind of likably in the background, but he has a very key arc this season. Um, so, yeah, there's there, there's so much of, of the show that I find so likable and even lovable. And those pieces are all still very much at play here. There's just some feeling that Apple should have three different or four different shows in the Ted Lasso universe already. And instead they have one, which is squishing half versions of all of those spinoffs together. And it might be better served if some of them were separate interlocking. 
it feels like the kind of thing where it might be just almost better off as being as functioning in the same way that a lot of the Disney plus Star Wars shows are functioning where you get the book of Boba Fett, but it could really also kind of just be a the Mandalorian season. Uh, and we're going to get a couple of the other spinoffs that are going to have similar functions. I, I feel like you could have, again, the Keeley spinoff in which Hannah Waddingham pops up and Brett Goldstein, Emmy winner Brett Goldstein pops up occasionally. Y you could have versions where you concentrate on the players and each player gets a standalone kind of anthological episode. There are so many different ways of doing it. Uh, and I don't necessarily know if fans would be as eager to have suddenly Ted Lasso become six different shows, but I think it might behoove the storytelling somewhat. But the, the bottom line is I watched these four episodes happily. I, I did look at my watch sometimes. It, just 44 minutes for a show with comedy rhythms is a long time. 50 minutes is a very long time when a show is structured like it's supposed to be a comedy. You you go, hmm, this feels like a, a storyline that could have been cut out or moved to a different episode. Or why are we really, you know, it's one thing to have an ABC storyline in an episode. Why are we looking at an F and a G storyline in an episode that's already really too long? Uh, but the, the bottom line is I, I like Ted Lasso very much. And there are big laughs and some emotional moments and all of the other Ted Lasso-y things in Ted Lasso. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. Can always come say hi to us on the Twitter. She's at Snootit with two O's. I'm at the fine print, F-I-E-N. Let us know what's working, what isn't working, etc. We're probably about a week or two away from another mailbag segment, but that doesn't mean you can't shoot us your questions, comments, concerns. Well, again, questions mostly. Comments and concerns, come say hi to us on Twitter. But again, questions. Email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That is TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.